This podcast is a publication of the Engineering Management Institute, where we are committed to building professional development systems, including project management and people leadership programs that support the growth of engineers and their firms. Download our AE Industry Trends Report for insights on the great resignation, remote work productivity, and people-centric cultures. To get your copy, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of the Engineering Career Coach Podcast, where I'll be talking with Dave Carey. Dave is an acclaimed motivational speaker, consultant, coach, and author. We'll be talking about his experience as a prisoner of war, or POW, for over five years, and the lessons that can be applied to life, leadership, and engineering. I'm your host, Jeff Perry, a leadership and career expert, and I'm the author of the new book, The Intentional Engineer. You can find more information about me at jeff-perry.com. And this is the Engineering Career Coach Podcast brought to you by EMI. It's the first podcast dedicated to helping engineers and technical professionals with both their personal and professional development. Now it's time to jump into the main segment of our episode. Today, I am so excited to have with me Dave Carey. He's a retired naval officer who's a POW in Vietnam for five years, and now he serves all over as a motivational speaker and author and coach. Dave, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Jeff. I'm delighted to be with you. Now, Dave, you've got quite a story, and so I want to introduce our listeners as, as quickly as possible to your remarkable story, being a POW, prisoner of war for over five years. Tell us about the circumstances that led to that capture. I was a very junior officer. I was flying off the aircraft carrier Riskany off the coast of North Vietnam. The morning that I was shot down, I was in a flight of 18 airplanes, and we were going to bomb a small railroad bridge just inland from the port city of Haiphong. And the short version of the story is they were firing missiles, and one of them took the tail off my airplane as I was upside down. And so the airplane started spinning upside down, and I'm trying to figure out what's going on inside this thing, and the the instrument panels will blur, and the, the sticks loosen. As it went through 4,000 feet upside down, I got a glimpse of my altimeter, knew I had to get out. I ejected from the airplane, had a parachute, landed in the middle of a small North Vietnamese village. And uh, nobody was around. I don't know where they were. They were wherever they went for air raids. So I get rid of my helmet, my parachute. I ducked out between the hoochers. I started running out across the rice paddy. And as I'm running out across the rice pad, well, you don't run in a rice pad. You know, the mud's about halfway up my calves, but I'm doing the best I can do. And I'm watching the airplanes fly away. And one of them turns around and starts to come back. So I stopped right there. I started digging around my gear. I dug out a little radio that we carried. And I get this little radio out. And uh, for the life of me, by the way, even though I'd had this radio in my hands a lot of times, now I'm pretty excited out here. And I can't get that radio turned on until finally when he boomed across the top, I managed to mash down on the right buttons and the thing sparked to life and allowed me to say in my very finest airline pilot drawls, it's not And I started babbling in that radio. My voice was up like three octaves. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, this does not sound good. 
But there was nothing I could do about it. I, the best thing that happened was I ran myself out of breath. When I ran out of breath, it allowed Dean to get a word in edgewise, and he said, you know, we cannot come and get you. At which point I couldn't think of anything clever to say, and he said, I'll see you when this is over, and he flew away. Then I was instantly surrounded by about a million North Vietnamese. Well, maybe that might be an exaggeration, you know, but 800,000 of them, and they captured me, and that started what would be five and a half years in prison in North Vietnam. You're in prison in what has been dubbed as the Hanoi Hilton, which uh, wasn't nearly as nice as uh, a Hilton hotel as we would think of today. So not great circumstances that you and your fellow prisoners were dealing with, uh, some incredibly challenging experiences. Can you tell us about some of those details, about some of the things that you and the others had to go through, and how did you and the others that you were imprisoned with deal with those years, not knowing where it was going to end, dealing with uh, some of the depravity and things that happened. Tell us about that. Well, Jeff, interestingly, the question I most frequently ask about that experience is kind of the question you're asking the way I phrase it is, if people find out about my background, they almost reflexively say, wow, how did you do that for five and a half years? And really, that's what I like to talk about. And, uh, it's the focus of my speaking. It's the focus of my book. And in my mind, the answer to the question is really very simple. And it is, we did what we had to do. We did our best. We grew through that experience. We kept our sense of humor and we kept the faith. Faith in ourselves, faith in each other, faith in our country, and faith in God. I see those things as directly translatable, quite frankly, into everybody's life. I mean, how do you handle your problems? How do you deal with the pressure in your life? How do you handle the change? How will you handle the tragedies coming in your life, both professionally and personally? How do you deal with it all? And so do you do what you have to do? Do your best, keep your sense of humor, grow? Are you growing? Do you keep the faith? So that's what I have taken away from that experience that I try to pass on to people. Now, the way to best understand that would be my experience was an incredibly good analogy for dealing with problems, change, an uncertain future, pressure in your life, tragedy. And so when I speak, I use that experience as an analogy, and I just keep making ties to what I know is going on in people's business or in their lives. That then brings me to your question about how are we organized or how did... Well, first of all, we were. this was a military group, okay? And so we were organized. There was no pickup ball game here. We always knew who the senior officer was in every cell, in every building, in every prison camp, in every the whole place. And so we were structured that way, and we were organized that way. And really, if I were to tell you in as much detail as I could all the terrible things that happened to me, I could account for some maybe a couple months out of five and a half years. Really what we had on our hands for the most part was just time. And so we did all kinds of things. We taught each other everything we had ever learned. And quite frankly, we taught each other some stuff we had never learned. You know? Part of that sense of humor that you were talking about. Yes. So one guy I lived with had been active in forensic in college, and he knew about how they ran debates. And so we decided one day we should have a debate. 
we're doing anything to pass time here and teach each other stuff. And so we had a debate. And the beauty of it was we had no resources. So you could say whatever you wanted as the first pro, and I could get up and counter as the first con just by saying, well, you've overlooked what Professor Smith from the University of Pennsylvania said about that stuff. And we'd just go back and forth. It was an exercise in creative arguing again. We had all kinds of classes. I do have an engineering degree, which will be hopefully comforting to your audience. <laughs> Although I, I did forget how to spell engineer a few years ago. And so I had a lot of math in my background, but I never understood exactly what I was doing. I could figure out how to do it. I got decent grades and all that stuff, but I never understood how does this work? What is this all this stuff I'm doing until I lived with a guy, another guy, who had gone to Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, and he got a little piece of rock, and we got down on the floor of a cell, and he taught me math. And it's the only time, first time, and only time in my life that I really understood what all this formulaic stuff was able to do. So we did all kinds of things. I learned to play piano when I was in prison. I lived with a guy who had taken piano lessons. We decided one day I should learn to play. So we took toilet paper and glued it all together with rice. We took ashes and dirt. We drew a keyboard on it. John taught me how to read the keyboard. He taught me how to read music. He taught me all the finger exercises that go along with playing the piano. I used to practice faithfully. And on Sundays, I would give concerts. I'd take my piano, I'd sprout my end of that cell. I have played the most beautiful music in the world, and I have most certainly played with more enthusiasm than anyone's ever played. And my roommates, they loved it, of course. Well, if they didn't like what I was playing, they could listen to something else, you know, and I'd play my heart out. We just did all kinds of things. I taught French. I had taken French two years in high school, two years at the Naval Academy. My roommates wanted I mean, we're trying to pass time here. So I started teaching French. And by the time we came home, I had six men fluent in the French language, according to me. But there were some problems with that language. I had to make some stuff up, but they could speak it. It was kinds of things we did to pass the time. You were talking about these lessons that you learned of like, do your best, look for growth, have faith. You know, you can review these for me, make sure I get them all here. These lessons that you learned in the struggle perhaps not the only challenge you face in life, but but perhaps the most dramatic. For those of us, most of us who haven't had something similar where we're dealing with something like that for multiple years on end and and feel like we've lost our freedoms and stuff, it's hard sometimes to relate, but those lessons, like you said, are can be applied here. So how can someone like me or any of our listeners who haven't had something that like this take and learn from you and some of the fellow prisoners and some of that experience and take those lessons into the challenges that we face that look very different, but are still the challenges and things that we deal with that we want to move through. I think the bottom line is that no matter what kind of struggles I've been through, if you're struggling with something, if you're in the middle of some sort of a high pressure problem or a tragedy or something like that, if you're in the middle of a merger, it doesn't matter what I've been through. It's all kind of relative. You're under the weight of it and you're under the gun of it. And that's why well, I've told you the, the little five things I use to 
keep my mind organized around what I want to say when I'm speaking. I mean, those things apply directly, I think. I mean, what do you do when you have those kind of problems? Do you continue to do your best? Do you do what you have to do to work your way through it? Do you do it in an honorable way? Do you do it uh, in an honest way? Do you do it in an ethical way? Do you do it in a moral way? Do you uh, keep your sense of humor through all this? I mean, and are you growing through it? And, and do you keep the faith? We, as a result of COVID, you know, the surveys all say that we're having a crisis of self-confidence of, uh, in our country almost, especially in, among younger people. And the bottom line, the message I try to deliver is that I'm no different than anybody I've ever stood in front of and talked to. I've just been tried in this crucible. But I assure you, and I would assure everybody who tunes into the Engineer Career Coach podcast, that they are way stronger, way more creative, way more resilient, way more prepared for whatever comes in their lives, professionally or personally, than they ever give themselves credit for. You know, resilience is is the buzzword in our country today. And I would assure anybody that listens to this that they are more resilient than they can ever imagine. I mean, I never imagined I could have gone through what I went through. If you would have asked yourself before you went into that, hey, this is what's coming. Do you think you're going to be able to, to handle this? We would probably all say absolutely not, no way, right? That's exactly right. I think your first lesson was do what you have to do, and that's day by day by day. And whatever that challenge looks like for people now that might be listening, whether that's they're out of the job, they have some really tough family experiences, health challenges, whatever that is that they're dealing with, you know, that feels like the weight of the world's on top of them, these lessons can apply. So this is great, Dave. I want to talk about the book that you've written, The Ways We Choose, Lessons for Life from a POW's Experience. We've talked about some of these lessons and principles already, but what are some of the things that the book shares? Maybe tell us about why you wrote that and capture that in, in that way when you're also doing speaking and, and other things too. Uh, what was the significance of the book and what did you really want to communicate there? Let's start with why did I write it. This is not going to sound good, Jeff. I wrote it for very mercenary reasons. As a professional speaker, if I'm published, I can raise my fees. I mean, that's just the way it is in the industry. After I'd been speaking for 20 years, <laughs> I decided I actually need to do this. My wife was a first grade elementary school teacher. She starts school in September. She's a total loss for a couple of weeks. And so I went off to the mountains and I sat down and I wrote the book. And really what I did was now, I've been speaking for 20 years when I did this, so I knew what I wanted to say, the, the things that we've been talking about, I wanted to talk about. So the book is like the way I speak, only it has a whole lot more detail in it. It has all kinds of other uh, classes that we had, for example, or things that we taught each other in prison and how we communicated with each other because they wanted us to be isolated cell by cell by cell. They believed in divide and conquer, and that's the way they were trying to run this. So we had to devise ways to be able to communicate with each other, because somehow we knew we could not be isolated like this. We had to be in touch with each other. 
other. We had to be able to support each other and and figure out who's in charge and what are we doing here and do we have any guidance that we're getting from the senior officers, all those kinds of things. So the book expands that detail. Even at that, it's not too, too thick. I forget how many pages are in it, but not a lot. You could read it in a couple hours if you set your mind to it. I'm trying to deliver the same message. And book can be powerful. It's a different delivery method and allows you to have something that after people speak, they can take and, and go reflect on these same lessons that you've shared there as well. You talked about these different lessons. I want to talk about faith for a moment. Faith is something that maybe we don't talk about much these days. And I've heard the same word from other stories that are told from POWs, uh, perhaps most famously, some people might have heard of the story of Admiral Stockdale, who was the commanding naval officer at the Hanoi Hilton there. While you were there, we were talking about that before we started recording. His story has been a little bit popularized in Jim Collins' Good to Great book, but he uses that same word of faith of needing to have that faith to get through and all those uh, who were there. So why do you use that word faith? And how did that word faith play a role as you think about maintaining hope and resilience through difficult times, especially when you like that faith of, of getting out and getting through when you had zero idea of when this was going to end, when the war would end, or when you'd get out and when it'd release you. So what did faith look like in a situation like that? I think there are several aspects of it. When I talk about faith, I talk about it actually in four categories, if you will. They're not separated, but... I talk about faith in ourselves, and we've sort of alluded to that when I've talked about you're way more resilient, you're way more creative, you're way more stronger, you're way more flexible than you ever imagined. We just need faith in ourselves. I've talked about faith in each other. We believed in each other. If I looked at men who, if they didn't hold my life in their hands, they held the next best thing to it, and I knew they'd do the best that they could do. And that kind of faith in each other is fundamental to our ability to work together, be together, live together effectively. It's based on trust and confidence in each other. I talk about faith in our country. The absolute truth is we live in the greatest nation that's ever existed on the face of the earth. This United States is a land of freedom, achievement, opportunity. It's the land. They're kicking the door without trying to get in. This is the land. The problem is, of course, that we're buried in what's wrong with this country. We are inundated with what's wrong with this country. If you turn the news on, you will see this much about what's wrong with our country. And lastly, but most importantly, I talk about faith in God. See, I was never alone over there. I've lived with men who profess to be atheist and agnostic. I believe it was more difficult for them. I don't think there was any accident. And that's not a popular subject in our culture these days, by the way. I'll tell you a story. So I get shot down, they take me to Hanoi, and they begin to interrogate me. They want to know some things. I want to tell them name, rank, serial number, date of birth. Well, they really wanted to know. And so what happens is the interrogations led to beatings, the beatings lead to torture. They really want to know. Well, first of all, my guidance was tell them name, rank, serial number, date of birth. That's Geneva Conventions. That's all I'm required to tell them. That didn't cut any mustard. And we get to the point where I hurt so bad, I, I'm such pain that I knew I had to do something or I was going to go crazy. And I didn't want to go crazy because even as a junior officer, I'd my little to be sure of military secrets. And I thought, if I'm crazy, there's no telling what I say. So what I decided I'd do is hold out as long, long as I could 
and lie. And that's what happened. We got to the point, I was so desperate, I started lying. Well, well finally then, they got done with me. Now, I'll try to describe this to you. I don't know how to tell you about how he hurt. I couldn't get up off the floor. My arms didn't work anymore. My arms didn't work for days and days. I ate by just wiggling on my stomach, stick my face in a bowl of rice. The pain was incredible, but worse than the pain was in my mind. It's the only time that I've ever been like this in my life where I could not pick a subject and think about it. It was though I didn't have any control anymore. And so crazy stuff flashing around in my head. And into my mind came the first line of the 23rd Psalm. And that line kept coming into my head. And I didn't want to think about it either, but I discovered sort of by hit or by miss that if I would think about that line, I could think about that line. Now, I had memorized the 23rd Psalm when I was a little bitty guy in Sunday school. And over the years, I had been so adrift. I had just been adrift. It had been years since I thought of the 23rd Psalm. But I could think about that line. I worked on it for days until from somewhere in the back of my head, I dredged up the whole 23rd Psalm. And I discovered, once I had done that, I had control of my mind back. I don't think that was any action. There was the Word of God that had been planted in my mind so that when I would be so desperate. You see, the Scripture tells us over and over again that God is faithful. Not you, and certainly not me, but God is faithful. And so when I talk about faith, I talk about all those various aspects of faith, the last of which, by the way, is the most important, because it is an anchor in my life. It is unchanging. Everything is going to change. Your friends are going to change. People are going to disappoint you. There's no nothing solid except that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. My experience teaches me we can rely on that. Dave, a lot of our listeners obviously are engineers and engineering leaders. You have an engineering degree and you work with some engineers. You're telling me you're a chairman of the board of an engineering company as well now these days. But let's talk just to them in an engineering experience or a business leader dealing with change, adversity in professional settings. How can we apply some of these lessons there in ways that they can understand and apply? I'm probably going to sound like a broken record here. The kind of confidence in themselves, their ability to, to do the things they actually have to do and do them well and do them with integrity and do it to the best of their ability and continually learn and <laughs> not get too serious and caught up with themselves and to keep this faith that we just got done talking about that is just directly translatable. There's no magic there. You know, it's a day-to-day grind, if you want to think of it that way, or quite frankly, it's a day-to-day privilege and opportunity. It is a great gift to be able to work with people. It is a great gift to be given a responsibility beyond the technical competence, because really where the action is, is with the people. I can get anybody to run calculations for me, but I can't get just anybody to have a feeling and an understanding and an open humanity when dealing with the men and women around them. So when I left the Navy, I decided to do some speaking, and I've also done a whole lot of consulting and training. And I work on how people work together. And I would do things like team building, leadership development, 
And where I really am, try to work is within their values. Everybody that you've ever worked with or been around who's faking it or is telling you something that you know they don't really value, they don't really believe, or they're just manipulating, we know it right off the bat. Somehow we've been given some sort of sensing mechanism about people, and we all have it. If you think about the people you work with, you know that some of them are polarized or tend towards polarization. And you know that others tend towards unification. And that revolves around a value structure that people have. So, you know, people that get polarized, they're polarized because they basically have a way down deep understanding that we are in this together. We are pulling in the same way that uh, uh, he or she is way too vested in their self-interest and what's in it for them rather than how do we produce the best product that we can produce here for our clients. I just try to work in those areas because I think anybody can behave any way they want, quite frankly, but our sensing mechanisms are finely tuned and we know whether it's real or not. And that's what causes the issues, the people problems that are, in my opinion, are most interesting to try to deal with. And so those values of how do we come together and and thinking about your time as a prisoner of war, like your fellow prisoners, like moving through that common struggle and needing to do it together, like you were talking earlier, like you knew you couldn't be isolated. You had to have ways to connect with each other and share with each other and communicate with each other. And sometimes I find in, in my own experiences, I struggle with this and see plenty of others, and I'm sure you've seen this too, is we get really transactional with how we go about doing our work instead of really trying to connect as the humans and rallying around. We're trying to do this together. We're trying to, even if it's a project we're doing together, even if it's change effort we're going through together, what are those values that are driving not just what are those tasks that we need to do, but how we go about doing them in a way that we can really grow each other and grow the, the business or, or others around us as we do that. So Dave, this has been fabulous and such an honor for me to have this conversation. At this point, we're going to transition over to our Take Action Today segment of the show. When we come back, we'll get one final piece of actionable advice from Dave. We'll be right back. We're back now with our Take Action Today segment of the show. And so as we end off here, what would you share with the people who are listening that they can take action? You know, there are a lot of these lessons and principles you've shared, but what can they do to keep this as a reminder to move forward as they move through the daily challenges and opportunities of life? I would tell them to take those little five points that I've mentioned put them on a sticky note or write them on a piece of paper and tape them to the mirror in their bathroom. And every morning when they're fixing their hair or shaving or whatever, go over that kind of a list. You do what you have to do. You do your best. You keep your sense of humor. You grow. You keep the faith. And uh, that's really how we move forward is internalizing things rather than, oh, yeah, I heard this guy talk about this stuff. Believe me, I'm convinced after all these many, many years of being out on the rubber chicken circuit, from the feedback that I get, that that would be helpful. 
to have it right there in front of you every day. And actually, I've heard from people that have told me they do that. It's not without reason that I don't suggest that. Um, so that'd be my best guess. So keep those principles as a reminder as you move through the, the day-to-day life and and then use them to, to help you through it all. So Dave, such a pleasure here. I'm sure there are going to be people who want to reach out to you, connect with you, grab the book, or perhaps have you, you speak to a group. Where would you point people to find out more information and connect with you? Well, I'm findable on the internet. I have a website. It's just Dave Carey, one word, D-A-V-C-A-R-U-I.com. I'm most easily found that way. Dave, once again, thanks so much for being with us and joining us on the show and, and look forward to maybe picking up the book myself and, and digging into the stories a little bit more and uh, hope that uh, our listeners here can take something from this because I know it's been a great conversation for me. So thanks again so much for being with me. It's been a pleasure to be on the Engineered Career Coach podcast. I wish you the very best. God bless you. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. We would love to hear your feedback, comments, and questions. You can go to engineeringmanagementinstitute.org where you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in the episode as well as links to any of the resources or websites that we mentioned in the episode. And don't forget to check out any upcoming live webinars for this month at the website as well. Additionally, for any engineers who feel like they need extra help taking the next career step or finding clarity in their careers, I've created some free training resources with an opportunity to join a more intensive program called the Engineering Career Accelerator. You can find more information at engineeringcareeraccelerator.com or you can go grab my career clarity checklist found at www.engineeringcareeraccelerator.com slash career clarity. Until next time, I wish you the best in all of your engineering endeavors. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to download the latest version of our AE Industry Trends Report to get answers to the questions that you want to ask your staff, but you may be afraid to do so. How long will the great resignation last? How long should you allow employees to work remotely? And how are successful firms using data to grow sustainably for the long term? You can learn the answers to these questions and more by downloading the report at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.